been talking the last few weeks about just where we come from a little bit, about being you know, Baptist. And I know a lot of people who come to our church, they don't care about being Baptist. They don't consider themselves Baptist. They just like coming to church here, and I think that's great. We're glad you're here. We've got a problem with that. But it still helps, I think, to know if you're going to worship with people or come you know, be a part of a group to some capacity to know where they come from, to have some idea of what they believe and teach. And so, uh, you know, it, it's helpful, I think, in that sense. And so I just want to share that with, a little bit with you today. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about a subject that most, about something, it's probably history. I've avoided it as long as I can, but I do want to talk about uh, history a little bit. And now, for me, I love history. I was a history major in, in college. Um, and so I find history fascinating. Um, and oftentimes when I preach, I bring a lot of what we call background material into it. It's historical to try to put it in perspective because history gives you a great sense of perspective. In 1517, uh, Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, on what we would call Halloween, posted uh, 95 statements on the, church, uh, the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he was teaching, and he began something called the Reformation, which radically, fundamentally altered human history. Uh, because it altered church history and Western civilization. So it altered everything else that follows with it. And uh, through the Reformation, Luther gave vision. He gave guidance in some description. He gave, he was the emotional, uh, he was an intellectual giant, but he was the emotional leader of that movement. Uh, he had the vision, all of those things. But another man who was a contemporary came after him a little bit, but still overlapped, was a guy named John Calvin. And uh, John Calvin and really in many ways defined the doctrines and theology that he and Luther shared. Uh, they, don't, I don't, they didn't share it together, but they both shared it. And, and came and gave a lot of the teachings that came during that time. In the middle of that 16th century, in the middle of 1500s, in England, King Henry VIII decided it was time to break away from the Catholic Church. He had quite a few marriages, and the Catholic Church frowned upon all those marriages. And... Uh, for those reasons, primarily, Luther broke away because of faith. You know, the essence of what faith is. Calvin broke away. Calvin had already broken away. But Calvin, it was about faith and, you know, Christ leading. And uh, Henry VIII just wanted to get married more, I guess. But the Church of England started. And uh, it was really the same thing as the Catholic Church. But it started and it was going on in the 15, middle 1500s, middle of the 16th century. And the Church of England, as the official Church of England, was also the only church that was allowed. All other denominations, all other expressions of Christianity were outlawed. Catholicism went back and forth in England. But not everybody saw fit to meet eye to eye with the Church of England. And at the start of the 17th century, the start of the 1600s, there was people who basically had broken away from everything. And they were called separatists. They were separate from England. And they were outlawed. And the king at the time, who outlawed them, was a guy named King James I. It is from this King James that we get the King James Bible. Now, obviously, he didn't write it, and uh, he wasn't responsible for it other than authorizing it. He authorized it. That's why it's called the authorized version. Not because God authorized it, or Jesus authorized it, or Paul authorized it, because a pedophile who loved young boys and persecuted our spiritual uh, ancestors authorized it. I mean, that's King James. King James was a horrible human. He was a pedophile. He was a pervert. Uh, if you and I were around in King James' time, he would just soon us be dead. And that's just King James. So I find it always a bit ironic to go to a Baptist or an evangelical church, not that they used to the King James, there's nothing wrong with the King James, but that think that's the only version of the Bible you should use. That they say it's the authorized version because it was authorized by 
utterly despicable and horrible human being, <laughs> to be honest, who would have killed every one of those people who read that Bible with his name attached to it. But that's just a little sidelight just to make things interesting the next time someone yeah, says something to you. But anyways, out of this group of people who were separate, and, and several part of these people were separate. There was Puritans, and there were some Quakers, and there were some kind of Presbyterians and Congregationalists, and there were just some people who were separate anyways. There were also other groups of people who were popping up about this time, Anabaptists, which nothing to do with us other than the word Baptist in it, and other groups popping out. But basically, it was out of these separatists. And from these separatists, especially the Puritans, and some who separated out, there are groups of people who believed that they understood salvation to be based on faith and that baptism was for people who believed, not for infants, but believers. And they became to be called, not Baptists, but the original name was followers of the baptized way or just followers or separatists. The word Baptist was added about 20, 30 years later as a slander, and they eventually they accepted it. But they were what we call separatists. And our forefathers, spiritually, uh, or historically, were separatists. Now, I know we like to say spiritually, we go all the way back to the Bible of Paul and Jesus, and there are some Baptists who go all the way back to Adam. It's just kind of a stretch because Jesus, you know. But I know I remember growing up with the trail of blood of the martyrs. Well, and that, you know, people, we like to say Baptists aren't Protestant and we didn't separate. We go all the way back to Jesus. Well, not really. Historically, we don't. And the people we would associate with were, you know, some of them were just heretics. So the reality historically is, now theologically, we go all the way back to Paul, you know, and Jesus. I get that. But we come from English separatists. And about 1608 and 1609, there were two men. One uh, named John Helways and another named, uh, uh, excuse me, John Smith, Smythe, and another one Thomas Helways. And uh, those two guys were kind of leading this group. And uh, Helways went off to Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam in 1609 formed the first what we would call Baptist Church. And then Thomas uh, Helways, and John Smythe did that. And Thomas Helways came back to England and in 1611 formed the first Baptist Church in England. They didn't call it First Baptist. It was just the First Baptist Church, not officially entitled the first one. These folks, what we would call General Baptists, they were separated off and they were called General Baptists because here's what they believed. They believed that Jesus died for everyone in general, that he died for all people, that his death was a general atonement. He died for every person, whether they became a follower of Jesus or not. A short time later, within about 20 or 30 years, another group came out of the same kind of movement and uh, they began to realize the same thing in uh, the 1630s about being baptized is for believers only. And this time they didn't, by the way, they didn't immerse. They were still pouring, mostly pouring or sprinkling. They, but there wasn't immersion yet. But this other group came about and uh, they were called particular Baptists because they believed that Jesus died in particular for the elect. And uh, these two groups eventually would kind of come together. But these were the two groups. And so by 1640, they formed a church and they believed in immersion. And by 1640, it was not just enough to be baptized as a believer. You had to go under and you had to come back out. And, and the reason for it is because this is what we see in the New Testament. And so just as a way of, you know, saying that I actually read scripture tonight in, in Acts chapter 9, um, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, Philip is with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he explained to him about Jesus. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom this prophet is this, is himself or someone else? Who is he speaking of? And Philip opened his mouth, began from Scripture to preach Jesus to him. And as he went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And uh, Philip, you know, then there's something parentively, and they, 
you know, Philip said nothing, you know. And they ordered the chariot to stop, and they both, in verse 38, says, went down into the water. And Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he was baptized. He went down into the water. And we began to understand that immersion, which the word baptized means, the Greek word baptizo means to go under. It's a violent term of plundering under and coming out. They began to then to be immersed. And it's at this time then that you really see the heart of who we are. And so General Baptist, in particular Baptist, they are from England. They are kind of our forefathers historically. And uh, they're very similar. There's some differences. General Baptists believe you can lose your salvation. And we've kind of rejected that. They believed you could lose your salvation. They also believed that while the churches were autonomous, there was one kind of Baptist church, and they were all kind of under the authority of a single group of people. Particular Baptists said you can't lose your salvation, and that every church is autonomous and answers to no one. During this time, you know, America was being settled by people from England. They came over for religious liberty. And uh, they came over and formed the Plymouth you know, Bay Colony and all that, Massachusetts Bay Colony and all those things. And in that time, a lot of these were separatists of different types. And a guy eventually came along, and his name was Roger Williams. And Roger Williams was a preacher in the 1630s in the Boston area, and he began to be influenced by Baptists. Now, here's the thing. All those people that came over from England to America for freedom of religion did not practice that freedom of religion. They imposed <laughs> state religions, and there was, you know, they imposed their religious beliefs on people. And Williams kind of was a free thinker, and eventually got kicked out of Boston and Boston property across the way in what we now call Providence, Rhode Island. And in 1639, Roger Williams became a baptized person by immersion and a Baptist. And he formed the first Baptist church in America in 1639, which went right along with all these other groups that were forming about the same time in England. And so that's kind of where we come from. At that time, there weren't very many Baptists, you know, but many people, period. And the early life of America wasn't, Baptists weren't strong. Congregationalists kind of dominated up in New England. They were Congregationalist churches, some Presbyterian. And in the midsection, the mid, uh, the mid-states, Maryland, well, Maryland was, was Catholic, but Pennsylvania primarily. In that area, there was more freedom of religion tolerated. Uh, you know your Baptists, you know your American history. In the South, they were mostly Church of England, Anglican. Virginia and all of that, they were hardcore. And, and Baptists were actually kind of... I don't want to say persecuted the same way they were persecuted, you know, like in the book of Revelation or persecuted in England, but it was, they, were, they were somewhat persecuted, and it was a difficult thing to have religious freedom. And uh, the first Baptists in the South were in 1682 in Charleston, South Carolina, who came to First Baptists. And uh, that was, you know, eventually be First Baptist Church of Charleston. Uh, they were, at that time, in areas that they were very uh, well-educated. It was a little uppity, you know. They, a little, they, was, they were a little highfalutin because they were the big city, southern city of Charleston was it. If you've ever been to Charleston, Charleston's still an uppity, highfalutin place for no reason at all. They have, shouldn't be, but they are. And then more churches though started coming in the rural areas. And Baptists began to grow and grow. In the 1700s, an amazing thing happened. Revival broke out in 1740, about 1740, called the First Great Awakening. It broke out in New England. But not everybody in New England was in favor of this crazy revival that was breaking out because people started, you know, just evangelizing and people started, you know, just getting lit up and, and it was excitement and they were on fire and it was really emotional. And, you know, the staid kind of conservative way of worshiping in a very formal, very few have seen churches in New England from that day, been inside them, you can tell they were very formal. They didn't accept that. That revival, though, spread over in the South. In the South, they did accept it. And Baptists accepted it. And they began to be extremely mission-minded. And Baptists in the South, it wasn't the Southern Baptists yet, they were just Baptists in the South, began evangelizing slaves, 
Indians. Women became more effective in ministry, and they just really had a bit of an explosion. And at that time, Baptist life began to focus on certain things. And Baptists then began to shape up the way we see them today. And here's what Baptists began to emphasize in their life. They emphasized religious freedom. It has always been critical for us to have religious freedom. I've shared this with you many times. It's nothing to do with politics. It's nothing to do with the, the, the First Amendment. I bristle at people telling me when and where I can worship. And I bristle at telling me how many people can come in my church. And I flat reject someone telling me what I can and can't sing, what I can and can't preach. You know, and we're told we're not supposed to sing and chant. Well, I don't care about the chanting part, but if I was a chanter, and, and Brian all of a sudden said, I want to chant. But, you know, I said, no. But you can't tell me whether or not I can sing. I am free, not because of the Constitution. I am free in Christ religiously. And I give that to anybody. That is so ingrained in who I am that I'm shocked at the number of Baptist churches you give that up. In fact, I had a conversation with a uh, <laughs> with the pastor search committee the other day. It wasn't for me. It was for someone else because I wouldn't go to this church. It was too small. I wouldn't pay me enough money. But... Um, so I was with someone else, and they were talking about stuff about being shut down, shut down, shut down. I'm like, well, why? Well, the, gov- the government mandated it. I'm like, well, you know, why? You know, you're a Baptist church. It's because the government mandates you can't worship doesn't mean you can't worship. It's to the heart of who we are. Religious freedom, central to who we are. The authority of Scripture. We only appeal to Scripture. And these aren't in order of importance because the authority of Scripture is more important. Scripture became the authority of, of, of our life. That is it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's this book. That is our authority. So on Sundays, I know I don't technically open up the book. It's okay. And I know we put the words on the screen. I got it. Same. comes from the same source, you know, God. But that's our authority. That's who we turn to. That's who we rely on to guide us in everything we do. So authority of Scripture becomes paramount to who we are. And then, in addition to that, understanding the authority of Scripture, we emphasize that baptism is by immersion of believers. That's what we call Baptists. Eventually, that's how we got the name. We baptize believers by immersion. We don't baptize children. Now, Sunday, we're going to dedicate children. We'll have some children up here, and we'll dedicate them. Some of them will be babies. Some of them will be just weeks old. And that don't do nothing but dedicate them. And, and really what we're doing is we're trying to leverage the parents to promise in front of God and us they're going to raise the children in Christ. And then we leverage y'all to promise you can do everything you can to support them. And that's what we do. And it's, it's our way of not having to baptize but doing something special for kids. But that's what we do. And then the other thing about Baptists is we became very mission-minded. Missions began the focus of what we do and who we are. And I'm going to talk about that more in a few minutes. But Baptists began to be the mission-minded people. Now, most Protestant, and even Catholic churches believed in missions, and denominations believed in missions. But it began to be at the heart of who we are. And as time wore on, Baptists in America began to share the gospel everywhere. Now, at that time, there was a bunch of different, you know, there was one kind of Baptist way of life, but there were all sorts of, you know, groups that would break off. And Southern Baptists hadn't formed yet. There was kind of just what we would call Baptist, you know. And, uh, but in the 1800s, in large part because of the issue of slavery, in 1845, Baptists in the South realized they had very little in common with Baptists in the North, not just in terms of slavery, but in other areas. 
And with everything going on, in 1845, we formed what is called the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's who we are. And Southern Baptists aren't just in the South anymore. They were back then. But Southern Baptists, the primary concern was to do missions. They, we, we started to do missions. Now, it had to do with the fact that the mission societies wouldn't appoint slave owners to be missionaries. And, and, and Baptists in the South said, well, come on, let's don't do that. And so eventually we split. Now, it's not because we supported slavery. Sometimes you said that. Slavery was a part of it. But we wanted to be able to appoint missionaries from the South. And so in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention started, primarily for the for purpose of doing missions. I want to share with you, today, in, Amer- in the world in which we live, I think there's something like, where is that thing? Uh, over 200 kinds of Baptists in America. Oh my goodness, I didn't bring it with me. There is, in America, some, I mean, in the world, 200 types of Baptists. In America, there's 121. I had a piece of paper with me, and I left it. I was going to read you all the different types of Baptists there are. Some, oh, here it is. Not all, but some of them. So let me just share you some of the unusual names. that I'll give you all of them. There is the American Baptist Churches in the USA, the American Baptists, the Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, the Association of Welcoming and Affirming Baptists. They're not very large. Um, Christian Unity Baptist Association, the Conservative Baptist Association of America, who think we're liberal, the uh, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship Broke Off Southern Baptist. The Enterprise Association of Regular Baptists. They also have a free car service. There are uh, Free Will Baptists. There are Fundamental Baptist Fellowship of Association. The Fundamental Baptist Fellowship of America. There's the General Association of Baptists. There's the General Association of General Baptists. There's the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. And the General Conference of the Evangelical Baptist Church. And the General Six Principal Baptists. I have no idea what the Six Principles are. There are several different types of independent. There's the Institutional Missionary Baptist Conference of America. There are landmark Baptists. Oh, yes, there are. And there are interstate and foreign landmark missionary Baptist associations. So there are landmark Baptists who are also missionary Baptists, interstate and foreign. There's the Macedonia Baptist World Network. There's the National Association of Free Will Baptists. There are also regular Free Will Baptists. There's the National Baptist Convention of America. There's the National Baptist Evangelical Life and Soul Saving Assembly of the USA. There are regular Baptists. There are old regular Baptists. And somewhere there are greater old regular Baptists. There really are. There are free will Baptists, and they're the original free will Baptists. There are missionary Baptists, and there are old-time missionary Baptists. Primitive Baptists, Primitive Baptist Universalists, Progressive National Baptist Convention. Um, Reformed Baptists. There are still regular Baptists. There are still separate Baptists. There are still separate Baptists in Christ. There is my favorite. If I wasn't a Southern Baptist, I would be a two-seat-in-the-spirit predestinarian Baptist because that's just whatever that means. There is United American Free Will Baptist Church, United American Free Will Baptist Conference. Then there's United Baptist, which split at one time. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And then there, there to top it off, is the unregistered Baptist Fellowship nobody knows anything about. Somewhere in all that, we all believe in missions, <laughs> and we all believe in religious liberty. Baptist life, you know, and Baptists were, Southern Baptists were not very large. They were a fairly small number. Uh, we were dominated in the South, and uh, that's where most of us were, you know. Uh, that way we're now, we're all over the place. At the close of the 1800s, Southern Baptists had been to grow. 
Um, Southern Baptist, United Methodists were kind of the two larger groups and others. Then, then in the World War I came, and uh, Baptists, you know, kind of began to grow. And then something unique happened in 1925. In 1925, two critical things that happened in Baptist's life that really allowed Southern Baptists, I should say, to really begin reaching more people. Uh, the first is that for the first time, Baptists, Southern Baptists put out our own confession of faith. Now, I said it with me before, we don't do creeds. Some of you, anybody grow up young doing creeds? You know, did I start anybody? This doesn't matter. No one's going to call you out. Can you recite them? Can you recite the Apostles' Creed? No, it's not close. Don't count. Do you ever see the commercial about close? Close enough ain't going to cut it. Uh, but we're, we're not, we're not uh, a creedal, but we have confessions. You know? And there are lots of confessions. Primary confessions that came out, you know, it was the Second London Confession of uh, 1682. And then there was the Philadelphia Confession of 1742. And then there was the New Hampshire Confession of 1833, which Baptists really followed until 1925. And we came out with what we call the Baptist Faith and Message. There's the Baptist Faith and Message was revived in 1963, and it was revived in 2000. I have been interviewed by churches uh, who were concerned whether or not I follow the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message or the 1963. And my reply is always the same. I don't follow any of them. Follow the Bible. But just so you'll know, I have never found anything I disagreed with in the 2000 Confession or the 63 Confession, or the 25 Confession, or the New Hampshire Confession, or the London Confession, or the Philadelphia Confession. Is there anything in there you disagree with? And the conversation normally ends, because I lost them at New Hampshire. The other thing that happened is that we came up with a way of funding Baptist life called the Cooperative Program. Until then, a church, we had all these different entities, the national, you know, foreign missions and home missions, seminaries, and they would all come to each church asking for money, usually in the fall after the harvest, tells you how rural we were. And it got really old, and it was really kind of cumbersome, and they all got into a bunch of debt for different reasons. And so the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship basically said this, that Baptist churches will send money, one lump sum, to their state organizations or whatever. The state will take their part, and they will send the rest to the National Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention will take that money, send half to do foreign missions, send other remaining rest of it, remaining half, send half of that, or a fourth to do uh, home missions, and then divide the rest up among seminaries and other things. And we did that. And it became so efficient that the vast majority of our money went to do ministries all across the country, the world, and even the states. And it allowed Baptists to really begin to fund mission work and to start and plant churches. And then on top of that, after World War II, we had this thing called a million more in 54. Now, some of you, I always joke, who remembers the cooperative program starting? None of you must. Who does remember a million more in 54? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't. Are you one? One very sold, Dr. Bullock. Well, me and more in 54 was a huge evangelistic emphasis to baptize a million people. And while it, we weren't successful in getting a million, we were so successful in sharing the gospel that Baptists took off like never before. At that time, there was many United Methodists as well as Southern Baptists. Now, United Methodists began to become more liberal in theology, and that was one thing. Southern Baptists took off. And today, there are 47,000 Southern Baptist churches in America. That's number one among number of churches. 15 million Southern Baptists, second only to Catholicism. And while our numbers, you know, we, things happen, you know, in Baptist life and numbers go up and down, we are still a major, major, major force of sending missions throughout the world. We were at one time 
the number one missionary force and sending missionary force in the world. Uh, now, some of that's changed because churches in other parts of the world are sending missionaries all over the place. But we still, you know, send a lot of people out. And in America, we still plant lots of churches. It is still at the heart who we are. We are a church that focuses on missions and evangelism. So you hear us talk all the time at this church. Honoring God, getting people to Jesus, evangelism. And then you hear us talk a lot about our missions, our strategic partnerships and the missions, the things that we do. The fact that we're involved right now are internationally, our international relationships because of COVID or we can't do much with it. But we, you know, we support a church in Atlanta. Now they're, they're independent. I mean, they're on their own. They don't need our help. So that's good. Denver, Phoenix, another one in Phoenix. We're working with the church plant here. Uh, with uh, uh, Derek Mitchell. We're working with some Hispanic church plants. We spend a lot of our time, effort, and energy trying to find ways to help do that. Yesterday, Joe spent all day long in a meeting with the North American Mission Board about how he can be an assessor of uh, Spanish language pastors. Um, I was in a meeting three weeks ago uh, in uh, Albuquerque with the North American Mission Board about how they want us to, to strategically partner with them and things they're doing in New Mexico. We are constantly focused on how can we do missions. I meet with the guys out of El Paso even. I met with a guy out of Texas last week wanting to know what we can do in this whole region along the border, the Texas-New Mexico border, of planting new churches to our mutual benefit. We get focused on missions. That's who we are. And so when you look at the life of our church, our insistence upon religious liberty, which we have, our focus on scripture, our tendency to be strongly concerned with not all these different social ministries that go on, but with sharing Christ with people and trying to develop strategic mission partnerships, it all goes back to our identity as Baptists. That's why we do what we do. That's who we are. We're we're those types of people. And so hopefully what I want you to see is that's, it's within the DNA of us. Now, if you don't come from a Baptist background, that's okay. And, and, and like I said, lots of people will show up this next Sunday. We're going to have a ton of people here. And, you know, they don't care that we're Baptists, and I get that. But it's important to understand why we do what we do and the reason we think. And the very things that attract people to our church were some of the very things they don't care about, which is fine. But they don't care about things that some of us basically build off of to make our church what we are. And so I kind of wanted to share that little bit. I think I covered everything I wanted to cover. I got you the names of all those fancy churches. So let me tell you why it's called the two seed in the spirit. Does anybody know why it's called the two seed in the spirit? I'll tell you why. It goes back to an old battle, controversy, in Baptist life among the Campbellites. You don't have to worry about that. You can research them, but you don't have to worry about that. And the belief was that every person is born with two seeds. There's the Adam and Eve seed. And there's the Cain and Abel, you know, all that's how they categorize the Cain seed, I should say. And one is towards God and one bends you towards hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. You are bent the way you're bent. You're either going to be bent towards God or you're going to be bent towards the devil. And that's the way you are. So you can understand that that's not a popular group to be a part of. <laughs> which is why they don't exactly flourish all of us. So one final thing that I'll share this with you. There were, when Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists in um, the 1800s were both kind of flourishing and growing, um, well, not flourishing, but they were both about the same size, they kind of figured out how could they do everything, and they came to these agreements we call the comedy agreements. Uh, and what they basically did is said Northern Baptists would stay north of Mason-Dixon, I guess, you know, north of Kentucky, and Southern Baptists stay in the south. And it, actually a couple of states were prepared to gain. And then they carved up the rest of the country. 
in New Mexico was designated for Northern Baptists, even though it was kind of in the South. But a strange things happened in New Mexico, even though Northern Baptists were going to be here. Now, Northern Baptists ended up having so much trouble, and they became small and, and unorganized and all that. People from Texas who were Southern Baptists, and by the you know, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, Texas was growing among Baptists, began moving to New Mexico. You may not have realized that, but Texans tend to move to New Mexico. And Texans tend not to live behind things that are Texan, like barbecue, <laughs> cowboys, and being Southern Baptist. And so while New Mexico was primarily a Northern Baptist state, Southern Baptists took it over, and basically the Northern Baptists left. And uh, so New Mexico primarily is from Baptist life now, Southern Baptist. Uh, and once in a while in Mexico and in Arizona and other places, you will come across two First Baptist churches. You will come across a First Baptist church and a First Southern Baptist church. The First Baptist church was there before the First Southern Baptist church. But the First Baptist church is not Southern Baptist. It's probably not Northern now. It's probably either Independent or Regular Baptist. But the Southern Baptist Church, you're going to be First Baptist. So you go First Southern Baptist Church. And I actually interviewed, uh, long before I ever came here, with a church, or talked to a church in uh, Arizona. And it was the First Southern Baptist Church. And I got a little confused researching it because I was looking at First Baptist Church in Tucson, remember? And I'm like, this ain't, a, this ain't right. This ain't a Baptist church. These people are crazy. Then I realized, oh, they're not Southern Baptists. I had to look up First Southern Baptist Church. So, you know, things that happen. So if you ever go to a place, especially in the West, and there's a first Southern Baptist Church, it's because somewhere along the lines there was a first Baptist Church that was not Southern that beat it there. And the Southern just did anyways. All right, I don't have any time for questions. I threw that trivia tidbit in there so you wouldn't ask any. So, well, next year, next week, what I say next week? Oh, I'll talk about predestination and free will. Eh, no big deal. We'll talk about that. See y'all.